0: Welcome to the Witness and Persecution Podcast with Nick and Ruth Ripkin, where we equip you with biblical principles and truths and practices learned from believers in persecution to help you cross the street and cross the oceans with the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Anthony Ball, and if you have been enjoying, if you've been blessed by the Witness and Persecution Podcast, we would encourage you to go uh, to the, your platform, to like it, to subscribe to it, and even to leave a review. That helps us I continue to get the word out. And uh, Nick, I was going to uh, tell you earlier and in our show prep, and I forgot to, to tell you, I, I discovered that I, we can look at all the cities where people are downloading the podcast, not just in America, but around the world. And it's just incredible to see uh, country after country, city after city, uh, people who are downloading and listening to the podcast. And so it's just it's a global thing. And we are so blessed by you who are our listeners. And so we would really encourage you. It helps us continue to get the word out. If you like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite platform. Uh, Nick, today we're going to jump right into it because. Well, Anthony,
1: I I thought I would say I I grew up in a a rural county in Kentucky and the county seat town had 1,200 people. So anything over 1,200 is a big city to me. (laughs) So if listeners come from, if they're listening from, you know, a small town or a big city, my goodness, I can't even imagine that we've lived in cities that, you know, live, have 500,000 to a million people. And we've lived in villages that had about 200 people.
0: Right. (laughs) And some of those villages of 200 people, I think are downloading the podcast. So uh, uh, pretty incredible.
1: (laughs) You can probably hide a lot better. In big cities than you can in in these really small ones like where I grew up. Did you ever watch Crocodile Dundee?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, his girlfriend that became his wife on the movie uh, talked about somebody getting counseling, and he asked her, uh, does he not have any, uh, well, he used an Australian term, uh, but he does not have any friends? (laughs) <laughs> and, and she said something like, well, you know, crocodile, you know, not everybody can be like you. How, how do you deal with trauma and, 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 and personal needs? He said, well, uh, down in Walkabout Creek, uh, if you have a problem, you tell Wally and Wally tells everybody else and gets it out. And then it's no longer a problem. <laughs> it's I hard to hide. It's hard to hide on a small team. Uh, I mean, a small town, and it's hard to hide on the mission field.
0: No, that's exactly right. Uh, I don't know if you, pl- I don't think you planned that. That's a perfect segue no. to what we're going to talk about today.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was just my brain freeze coming unfrozen.
0: <laughs> I was like, that's too brilliant and too perfect. <laughs> yeah. But that is an excellent segue. And And Nick, what we talked about today. Uh, we're going to jump into something that's just so immensely practical and so helpful and you know our purpose these we're actually going to break it up into two different episodes we'll explain why in just a minute we're going to break it up into two episodes one uh, for this week and one for next week and our, our purpose in doing this really you're going to give us a lot of practical insight a lot of practical wisdom that we can apply the, the purpose is to help some people who are listeners maybe stay on the mission field maybe to help some listeners stay in the ministry, uh, maybe to save some different situations. But we're going to do this in two parts, and we want to kind of not really warn our listeners, maybe just kind of make you aware. Uh, our first episode, part one this week, uh, is going to be a little bit heavy, going to be kind of focusing a little more on the negative, some, some traumatic things that, that you, Nick, are going to walk through. Uh, maybe just some problems and issues that you have seen and that exist and maybe some of our listeners are walking through uh, even even right now as you listen. Um, but we don't want to leave you with that there's gonna be really good news. So we're going to tackle some of the, uh, the issues surrounding some traumatic things, uh, hopefully help some people maybe stay on the mission field and not to leave. Um, and what we want to do, we're going to say this at the end of the episode as well, what we want to do After this episode is we want you as our listeners, if you resonate with something that Nick says, or maybe it brings up something that you need to talk through, uh, or maybe you have experienced some of these things or are experiencing them now, and you want to share with us uh, how you've walked through them or how maybe you led teams or ministries or people uh, through some of those situations, we want to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at question at ripkin.com. Again, that's question the word question at ripkin.com. Send us some insight or some questions or maybe some ways that you've dealt with that or are dealing with that. And uh, what we want you to do actually is if you'll put in the subject line for Nick only, that will go directly to Nick. Uh, I won't read it. I won't see it. Nobody else will read it. It'll go directly to Nick. If you'd like to share some of those. And then uh, if, some of you are agreeable and you write into the website, uh, a couple weeks down the road, we'd like to maybe make it a little interactive and kind of talk about and share. Here's what some of you are doing, walking through some of these situations. Here's what you're doing on the mission field or in ministry. Uh, so we want to hear from you and we'll remind you about that uh, at the end of this episode as well. So again, to remind our listeners, uh, maybe this part of the episode will be a little bit uh, heavy and the first part might be a little bit. Uh, more on the on focusing on some of the negative things but we're going to address that of this next episode but we wanted to do it justice by breaking up uh into two episodes to talk about these things so nick why don't you go ahead and take it away uh jump into what you wanted to share today and and we'll move forward
1: yeah i hope people will just uh hang on and listen to both podcasts uh this one and the next one and you know i had a thought while you were talking brother um there are a lot of folks that, uh, of course, uh, uh, married ladies and single ladies, and they might want to put on the byline for Ruth only. Right, right. Because they may want – they because Ruth, uh, she mentors more women uh, in hard places than anybody I know from any background, and she does mm. it full-time. I mean, Doesn't surprise uh, she me. spends – she spends hours every day, uh, on text and email and, and writing notes to people that, uh, uh, uh she still, she still writes. Uh, we probably spend, uh, I don't know how much money on just notes and on, on at Hallmark when we moved, <laughs> they had to close that store down because <laughs> she, she brought so many cards for people. And so what, what, Love what that. I want to reiterate is i i've i've uh split this up in my mind and in my heart as i got to writing my notes out into uh you know the traumas of life especially in terms of ministry especially mm. in terms of working in an overseas setting and and then the second part this doesn't do it justice but what are some of the strategies and life practices and 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 team things that we can do uh, to keep us healthy are healthy enough that lost people continue to have access to the gospel. And as you Mm. said, I think think that that there's probably just knowing the way life is and the way that ministry uh, eats people alive at times, especially in tough places and in tough churches, there are people possibly that will listen to this or someone that, you know, that you can help that is on the mission field somewhere. And they might be in an open country and it might be very fruitful. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, but they're just mm-hmm. thinking of uh, uh, they're, they're looking for the right reason to come home without mm-hmm. giving the real reason. And, uh, right. um, and, and what they, sometimes what happens, uh, we get into these situations and, and what I've always said to people and, and Ruth and I've said to each other, when you allow the abnormal to become the normal, that's when you need help. Mm. And, and, and when you, when, when you travel from disaster to disaster, uh, like a uh, Somalia and, and, and you just say, well, this is the way the world op- operate, operates and you allow the abnormal become the normal. You know, one of the first things you'll do right. it, it, not only will you become abnormal, but you, you'll see that that is so unchangeable. Uh, you, you'll not share the Jesus in that situation that can make that abnormal become spiritual. Wow, Uh, heavenly normal. We're not looking, and that's the problem with with the history of missions, is we want to make it Western because we think that's normal Christianity. That's not normal Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. And so we've got folks, uh, and and most of us, especially those of us who have served almost four decades on the mission field, there, there have been times one of us in our marriage, or both of us, have, have, have probably said not out loud, but I'm done. You know,
2: mm.
1: you can't even tell the stake is a stake anymore. It's been on the fire so long, and, and mm. you're looking at leaving uh, the mission field. We know, especially in hard places, that, and, and now the folks that are coming to the mission field. Every generation brings their own gifts and their own cultural backgrounds but in the electronic world there's a whole lot of sense that there's not anything that we can't fix in a couple of years but mm. if you go to islam and some of the other tough places of the world and you learn the language you learn the culture you have a good team a good family you do everything right You're going to get a teeny weeny bounce at about four 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 years, Hmm. four years. You're going to see some people responding to what you're doing and asking the right question. And you're going to get your first major bounce uh, of what, however you measure uh, that you're doing is right and godly and leading to the kingdom of God. Uh, You're going to get a major Hmm. bounce at 11 years. Wow. And so, if you quit, and, and 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 the trauma of the situation, and there's going to be a lot of trauma in that kind of lostness, uh, and, mm-hmm. and and you you find a reason to give yourself a, an honorable discharge. That's what I watch people do. You give yourself an honorable discharge, mm-hmm. a reason that you can leave the field, and 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 you are going to cheat yourself out of seeing what God can do if you just stay with it. Right, now that doesn't right. mean that you put up with bad stuff. It means that you deal with the bad stuff mm. and you, 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 you can't stop the attacks of Satan, but you can put on the full armor of God. And so mm, this week is about the attacks of Satan. And next week is going to be about putting on the full armor of God. And, and, and sometimes, uh, uh, it takes people to help you even put your armor on. And make sure it's fitting right, and that mm-hmm. you're covered right. And, yeah. and so I know, I know that there are people that are listening to us that are in more of a of a gathered body of Christ situation. Uh, they're a staff member, or they might be a member, and things have got tough. And and just like uh, we would overseas, uh, before you're there long enough uh, to make a real difference generationally now just by that statement i've suggested what it takes to change a situation is almost a generation Mm -hmm. Uh, you've got to stay with it and and maybe you'll hear something in the trauma segment and say wow i can take what nick says and and double it And, and and some of you are in really bad situations and there are situations that are done to us by seemingly brothers or sisters in christ that if you can't do the biblical thing and deal with it then you bring somebody else in you don't have to get out on the edge and what i what i'm asking you not to do is let somebody else cut you off cut the limb off the tree but what more i'm asking you and and Pleading and praying that you don't do is cut the limb off yourself. Mm. And so uh, so you may, you know, it's tough. If you're listening to this in the States, uh, on, on, on the open countries, we used to do something. I don't really believe in it anymore, Anthony. But we used to measure okay. uh, evangelism and discipleship. And we called it the front door and the back door and I may mention this in a number of segments, but the front door is your evangelism. And if a hundred people, like in a Malawi, a very responsive place, if a hundred people came in the front door and you planted a body of Christ, however that structure or non-structure might look, if in five years, 20 people dropped out and left, we got a whooping. Now, if you're not a country person, you might not understand what a whooping is, but it's Glad not a good experience. That. But but we, we got we got discipline and we got called in to explain why is one fifth of 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 the fruit of the ministry not hanging in. And, but I don't believe that you can separate evangelism and discipleship because if I said, I think I've said before, when did Jesus evangelize his disciples. And when did he disciple his disciples? I think evangelism, discipleship are two words meaning the same thing. So I don't do the, I think we could still do the front door and the back door, but I'd probably look at calling that different things. And so if on the mission field, if we lost 20% over the five years, uh, it it was a reason for uh, answering some hard questions. And Mm. when we look at, evangelical churches in the mission field overall, and there are some really, really healthy bodies of Christ out there that that we get to be in all the time, but overall when a hundred come in the front door, over seventy go out the back door and go somewhere else or quit altogether.
0: Wow. That's crazy.
1: You can't can't run a business like that, let alone the body of Christ. Hmm. And a shepherd knows his sheep, and the sheep hears the shepherd's voice, and they trust it and they follow it even when they don't understand where they're going and so you, you might you might might be in a a mission situation uh, I mean uh, Ruth and I have taught it in, in in Salt Lake City to young workers there and young couples with children there and if you can hmm. do uh, if you can incarnate Christ and see people come to Christ and see them gathered in homes in salt lake city you can do it anywhere in the world and you might be in that kind of situation you might be in a in a a traditional church uh you 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 might be in a marriage that has just lost its luster and it it seems easier to get out than to stay in but it never is that's right that doesn't mean that you you put up with a lot of ugly stuff and, and, and sometimes uh even uh counselors will suggest that 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 you and the children or you as a husband are at risk and and uh, something's got to be done and um and so uh, you, you might be in that situation And we're hoping uh that if you're listening to us the next two weeks uh, you can find mm. comfort and that you have partners in your suffering, and we can carry our cross together. And you have partners that will also be with you when the stones rolled away and and the resurrection comes. And counselors, I'll get ahead of myself. Counselors say that when you're in a dysfunctional situation, you're not looking for a 180 or ninety, even a 90-degree change. If you can get a 7% change in a dysfunctional situation, it's like the windows of heaven have opened up and, and, and the breath of God has swept over you. And so as you listen to this trauma uh, uh, section of, of this, and it's going to be very personal from Ruth and I, but it's going to be very indicative of what life is like. And 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 my biggest concern is the suicide rate in America is at an all, all-time high. Wow, And, 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 and mm. some of you might be immersed in ministry and you might be in a, a marriage or a relationship that's just going south or, or you've got just a situation that just seems unredeemable. And the only way out you see is just to take your own life. Mm. And I hope you find grace in this. I hope you find identification with what we do this week. Uh, uh, and, and that might you might even hear that some people are going through things that you could not even imagine, and uh, uh, and just ask you to hold on, and we talk about what solutions that God's people can bring uh, through the Holy Spirit, through biblical principles. Uh, just hold on for a couple of weeks, and and and, and say uh, helps are coming. Uh, some of you are so trapped into a a situation. You've allowed, as I've said to people on the mission field over and over again, you do not allow the abnormal become normal for you. Mm. You don't let uh, uh, 20 children dying a day and say, well, that just is what's happened the last six years, and so it's just normal. You don't don't talk to six months that, that, that every woman that Ruth talks to has had the worst done to her eight times or more. Mm. You don't say, well, every woman over 12, 14 years of age has that happen to her regularly. uh, So that's just normal. You don't do that. It's not normal. And what we've got to do under the grace of God is to break the cycle of this Mm. abnormal world, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a church or whether it's in a Somalia. uh, there, There are ways that we can not just survive anthony but we can thrive
0: right amen
1: now it doesn't mean that we're not going to come out with scars but the apostle paul talked about the scars that he bore proudly for the lord Hmm. and i've been with a lot of believers in persecution and they had the scars on their wrist and the scars across their back and the scars in their soul that you can't see and believers in persecution always told us it's not the physical persecution that's the hardest. It's the psychological and the emotional degradation. De, 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 what's that word?
2: De- they de- degrade de- your degradation. Very, yeah. A,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, they do that to your very soul and your very personhood. Uh, you've mm. got to find ways to take that off limits. Mm. But that's what the Soviet Union did so well. Uh, that's what they do psychologically in East Asia so well, and it, and it's returned to the battle days now. That's what they do right. in the country uh, north and east of what we call East Asia. Uh, and I'm being mm. a little bit probably too secure here, uh, but uh, and 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 there's places on in the Horn of Africa that if you're a believer, it's the first place I've ever went. Since then, I've seen it often where they took women and put them in shipping containers, the 20 and 40 foot shipping mm. containers in the desert and lock you into that. Mm. And, and, and do it to women and single women regularly. And you can imagine what else goes along with that. And so mm. I, I, I'm asking you just to hold on. And some of us have let the abnormal become the normal for so long that we can uh, we've lost our personhood and, and who we are as a human being and our personhood in God. And and, and so whether you're on the mission mm. field locally in, in, in your country of origin or countries of origin, or, or whether you're in some place that really to uh, not only survive, but thrive, you've got to learn and embrace uh, uh, other languages and other cultures. And so that you can, Uh, negotiate them for the sake of the kingdom of God, whether you're in a uh, we've had some really good church experiences and we've had some very dysfunctional church experiences Um, Mm. uh, in a marriage that's just on the rocks or or again, you look in a mirror and you just see a shell of who you used to be. Uh, We don't want you to take that shell and do something to it. We Mm. want you to refill it and fill it up with what's uh lovable and livable and transferable to others. And so, you know, again, I uh, I grew up in a big family. My mom finished the 7th grade. My dad uh, uh was a uh, uh he was a, a really great bricklayer but uh, he also could frame a house and build it from the foundation up. And hmm. as boys, uh, yeah. I started out working with him for 15 cents an hour back when I was, uh, about 11 years of age. And, and, uh, it was hard work and, and, uh, oh, I, yeah. I went to sleep. Uh, my mom had four boys a year apart, you know, maybe, you know, year to 14, 15 months apart. And then she rested for three to five years. And then she had three more children uh, a year apart. And the uh, first six were boys and the last kid was a a girl. And uh, about the time (laughs) my sister came along, uh, I was in college. That's how far apart we were. And, um, and so uh, I, I remember because I've always been hard. It's always been hard for me to go to sleep. I'm always the last one uh, to go to sleep and, and, and living in a small house uh, a lot of times i'd lie in bed and and listen to uh my parents fight mm. and listen to things break and uh and and i i don't necessarily say that was uh, a scarring on my soul and and that i cried and, and and that i needed to talk to somebody because i thought that was normal i, wow. I didn't know I didn't know something different from that. That's all I knew. When my sister, we had a two-bedroom house and an attic. And when my sister came along, she got the other bedroom with us boys that were dividing it up through bunk beds and, and trundle beds. And and us six boys went upstairs to the unfinished attic, where in the summertime, we put a fan in the window at each end of the gabled house and, 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 and stuck together, you know, through the heat. <laughs> And in the wintertime, if you took a glass of water to bed, uh, it was it was frozen in the morning. But again, hmm. I didn't complain. I, I didn't know that that was abnormal. I, I don't ever remember really spending the night at anybody's house. That's not things that we did. And and if I went to right. camp, you know how things are at camp, 4-H camp, and they're very basic and not much different at home, except hmm. uh, there's a different kind of noise and 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 so um my family was um uh, as I've come to learn as a follower of christ it was not a a functional family my mom mm. uh left my father after wow, wow i don't know twenty six years of marriage I don't really wow. remember uh she left my dad after at our wedding ceremony after the ceremony was over. And after the reception Mm. was over, my mom came by and said something to Ruth and I, and got in a truck with someone else and and left. And we came home from our honeymoon in the midst of that. My mom said something to us, like uh, to Ruth and I uh, just remember no matter what happens, uh, uh, I love you. And as she walked out the door, Ruth said, Nick, what was that all about? And I just sort of had a, a flash of intuition and mm. and I am pretty intuitive. I said, you know what? I think my mom's leaving my dad. Wow. And if I had said to on Ruth, day. Ruth, I was, yeah, on our, we were changing to go on our honeymoon when she wow. walks in. And I, and I said, Ruth, my mom's leaving my dad. If I said, if I said to Ruth, uh, uh let's go to Mars on our honeymoon. She wouldn't be any less to sound it. And I looked at her and there was just a blank look on her face. She grew up in such a loving, caring, quiet family. There was no place for this to land. And we came back from a great, great time together, get to know each other. And, and, and the week we're back from our honeymoon, our small church in Southern Indiana, I get a call from dad. If you let that woman in your house, I'll, never talk to you again. And then I get a call from mom. If you let your father in your house, uh, uh, I'll Hmm. never speak to you again. I told my parents, this house is Switzerland. It's a (laughs) neutral country. And so you, it doesn't take sides and you're not going to tell me who I can love and who I can have in my house. And so if you come (laughs) to my house, it's Switzerland. And, uh, I used to live, in your space, but now I'm living in Switzerland. And so uh, it got, I had a incredible, I'm not sure they knew that much about Switzerland, but it was a a good conversation uh, starter. And so I just, I, 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 I can't tell you that living in that, that I felt traumatized and like I always needed to talk to somebody because that's all I knew. Mm. Uh, and, and, and once I got into the first Christian family I ever met was Ruth's parents and her brother and sister and began to see what it could be like. Uh, my goodness. I I just knew it made me fall in love with Jesus more and made me want to have a family like that. And so I began modeling through my personality what I was learning from Ruth's family and then very quickly from other Christian couples that we got intimate with and it was just a whole new new ball game but uh we pastored uh some you know sadly, as I've said before, in order to go to the mission field, you had to pastor at least three years, but the gift set of a huh. pastor are not the gift set of a missionary. A pastor right. is, is a, is a, is what? A, 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 what's that word? He's a something teacher. He's a.
0: A pastor teacher. Shepherd teacher. A pastor
1: teacher. Yeah. A shepherd and a teacher. Yeah. And and a worker is an evangelist and, and, <laughs> and, and a pastor builds long-term relationships and oftentimes stays multi-generations to be super successful to take, not generally, not necessarily a, a church large, but to take it deep into the kingdom of God and, and uh, an apostle Paul and someone who's got an apostolic ministry is going to do evangelism and church planning and going to stay just long enough to see a, a local leader raised up to be the shepherd of that. And then you move on and you move hmm. on and you move on and you move on. And and and, and 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 but that's not the gift set that you get from being a pastor. And I wasn't a good pastor. Ruth was. She'd watched her dad in all those years, and she'd watched her mom, and and wow, uh, you know, I could even be told you need to be like Ruth, but uh, I, I got heavily criticized by leaders that I love today deeply, and 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 and, and got called in for a special called uh, a, a deacons meeting. Because, uh, and the, the, the issue was I was hanging out with lost people too much. And therefore I wasn't mm. taking care of the church. Wow. Well, you know, everything in me, I thought that's what I was supposed to do, but it wasn't really, mm. it wasn't really, I was supposed to take care as the shepherd of the sheep and enable them together with me, uh, to reach the community. But I thought. But I really love being with lost people and, and, and going the way of the pastorate was not the way of uh, preparing me uh, for the mission field. Uh, we should, in seminary, have a church planning track, and, and it's not something you teach. I don't think you can teach evangelism and church planning. You just have to go do it. Right. And you have to learn by your mistakes. And sometimes you learn a lot more by your mistakes than you do learn uh, by, by your successes. And so, right. uh, I did, I did have some, uh, especially one, a conflictual, uh, pastoral experience. And in others, I had some conflicts. I mean, in the first little church we went to, uh, I went to it a month before we got married and the first year the membership doubled and wow. there was a called, <laughs> uh, leaders meeting, on what have you done to our church you've brought so many people in we don't know everybody and you've ruined the uh, the family sense of our body of christ mm. well i thought i thought doubling it was good but i didn't understand the theology of growth and how to manage that and to take people with ruth and i so that they were the ones Uh, leading the growth, not me, and allowing them to sit in the bleachers and watch it. Mm. You know, we were in the game and they were not participants. They were observing that that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's why Paul takes Timothy and John Mark and and others along with him. And that's why Jesus didn't even cross the street in ministry without his 12 disciples and all those women that followed him from the beginning and are mm. mentioned at least three times in, in Luke. And so I had a uh, tough pastorates and, and, and was discouraged until uh, uh, came the day that Ruth and I, as we said in another podcast uh, realized it was time to go to the mission field. And it was on the mission field and learning language and cultures. And even in training, I knew that I had met my life's calling because was with with lot like minded people uh who were going to the nations all over the world uh to mm. to see how Jesus could seek and save those who are lost and and for the first time, my heart beat the same with a group of others who were going to do the same thing and for over thirty five years on the mission field and and reaching back into it back and forth in various ways now uh that remains uh uh, my first love in in, in i don't mm. call it vocation if i could i would do it and never take a dollar for doing it because i've loved it so much and ruth and i and our boys have loved mm. doing it together uh so much but in our first term anthony uh it, it, it was hard and it was harder for ruth than for me uh there came a time the boys had had malaria five times. There was a time when all of us was mm. in the same African hospital. Ruth and I shared a twin and a half bed. And the boys were on a, 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 a sleeping bag on the floor that other workers had mm. brought us. And what they did, they treated it with quinine IVs, Ruth and the two boys, not the three boys. Uh, the third son came along later. Uh, in South Africa, not in Malawi. And, and so, uh, they treated them once the, uh, they call that when they put that IV in you, that quinine IV, the moment the IV goes in you, your ears begin to ring really loud oh. and it's a very invasive drug. And once the 24 hour IV was finished with Ruth and the two boys, they went to a worker's home and then I stayed another 24, 48 hours. And then I got the same treatment. But in that first twenty-four mm-hmm. hours plus, I had to help them into the bathroom and wash them and 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 care for them and and in some cases feed the boys because they were just very, very sick. And we stayed with that worker uh for twenty-some days, Anthony. And we got wow. in the truck and went went ten hours north back to our place of service. And after we were there ten days, our oldest son had malaria again. Oh. And finally I'd been in the hospital so much that the Irish Catholic doctor became a great friend, came in and said to me, "Uh, Nick, do you want to see Jesus? And I said, of course. I knew the answer theologically. (laughs) I want to see Jesus. And he said, if you don't get out of this country, you're going to see him in about two weeks to three weeks. He Hmm. said, one more malaria. He said, your eyes are already bloodshot. Uh, Your anemia is off the charts. And, And I've got you in clinical depression. By all the chloroquine, that was, you only had two drugs in that time. Uh, And chloroquine, you took it to prevent uh, malaria. And then once you got malaria, you took 15 tablets over five days. And that wasn't a pleasant experience. The side effects were horrible. And so you took the same medicine to burn the malaria out that you took to prevent it. So that doesn't work very well. And so he took the initiative and called our mission leaders in Malawi and said, if you don't get this family out, uh, uh, especially the husband and wife, uh, you're going to lose them. And they gave us, mm. well, they called us back down to the capital city where there was no malaria. They moved us in two weeks. And in, in a month, less than two months, uh, they gave us a choice to move back to America or go to South Africa where there was no malaria, where they would move us. And we, we certainly did not want to return to america because africa had won our hearts and so without knowing much about it we said we'll go to south africa and our first year there was spent learning closer language and just getting well we were sick mm. the whole year because when mal- what ma- wow. very few people die of malaria they die of parasites and they die of pneumonia and they die uh, they get struck with tb and and, mm. and leprosy and all kinds of things. It just trashes your immune system. And then the malaria in the wet season in Malawi, we'd lose about a, a third of children under two and, and a third of people over 65, 70 years of age. Wow. And it was because of malaria, but they died of all these secondary issues, diarrhea and, mm. and all kinds of things. They just waste away. And so in in uh Ruth, just, you know, back in those days, you had to answer a call to a specific country and they gave us 150 countries in Africa to pray over. And Ruth and I chose the same 75 apart from each other. And then wow. we chose the same 50 apart from each other. And then we chose the same five, the same 25, and then the same five. And then we chose the same country, praying and fasting apart from each other. And so when we could lay that country Malawi on the table, uh, Ruth was wedded to that for life. Mm. Because in those days, you went to a country and you stayed. But for me, right. when they said you had to leave, I just thought, well, the adventure continues. Because I've always had itchy feet. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't see the Great Commission as being uh, to a country or even to uh, people groups were not even uh, a phrase back then. But learning a second language while you're sick is not something I suggest for the faint of heart. (laughs) But our kids were doing very well. It was the only time until we moved to Kenya to do the Somali work, it was the only time in 10 years that uh, that the older two boys went to a public school for a year. And we're able to go to like go swimming and things like that into a public pool. And we had nice places to shop, but we lived in a black homeland. And after the first year, we moved to a place called Caduce. Got two clicks in it. Our Lady Hmm. Freer in in English, a a town of about two, three hundred people in the heart of Kosa people. And we're about an hour over the mountain from South Africa. And uh, as we went over that mountain on the trans side, we looked, worked in a, a black township of a hundred thousand people. Uh, it was totally black run and, but they had to go into the Afrikaan city mm. uh, of Queenstown to do their shopping. And, and, and we also worked in a black township on the South African side called moon And there, uh, in a two week period, a uh, black on black violence killed 260 people.
2: Wow. And
1: wow. there were about six times that the white uh, security police uh, came and got me, had me follow them into a police station, and made me watch videos of black on black violence. And it, it's too horrible. Uh, I can describe, I would describe it here if I knew that children didn't have access to it, but mm. they made me watch it. And they did say to me, uh, they say, Dr. Ripken, uh, why are you putting your wife's life at risk and her body at risk and your children at risk? Uh, then we had three kids. Uh, they told my wife that because of all the drugs and the malaria, she would never bear a child again. And one year into language learning in South Africa, uh, she, uh, became pregnant and had our third son. So doctors don't mm. know what God knows. And so uh, <laughs> right. uh, we got to raise him. And Koso and, and was uh, nearly his first language. And he, he went mm. to, a, we looked at a picture today, Anthony. I haven't looked at for 25 years and it's a picture of our son <laughs> in the kindergarten class where he's the only white child in the kindergarten class. And in the wintertime, he had to carry firewood to his kindergarten class for heat. All the kids did. And that kindergarten was about a 100 feet higher from our property, and we could see the playground. And when they went out, we could see almost every day our little white son climbing the tree at the playground with black children, boys chasing him, (laughs) wanting to pull his pants down to see if his bottom was white. (laughs) The first village I ever slept in, Hmm. uh, in Malawi, because I wore long shirts, uh, socks and boots uh, because of mosquitoes. Uh, 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 At Midnight at night, I'm sleeping in a hut with three or four pastors and kids are outside talking and laughing at midnight. And and I kept asking the pastors, what are they saying? What are they saying? And they wouldn't tell me. It's just too polite. And finally, I just said, I've got to know. I've got to sleep. They said they want to know if you're white all over because all they could see was my face and my hands. And so I Hmm. kept on my University of Kentucky basketball trunks and I took off my T-shirt. And at midnight under a full African moon, I walked out of the hut in, in the midst of 20 some children. And they saw this white body, except what I wasn't going to let them see. And they said in Chichewa, oh, have you seen something as disgusting in your life? It looks like some <laughs> kind of grub, some kind of grub that comes under the rock, you oh, know. No. And, uh, and 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 it took me a How year terrible. to get the past. It took me a year to get the pastors to tell me what the children said. But uh, they thought that was they were really thankful to God that they didn't look like that. And they couldn't believe. <laughs> uh, and the word for white people among Khosa and, and the coast of South Africa one of the words was in slopey. and it's a word that describes because the first white people they saw were from shipwrecks, from the one mm. with the, 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 the sails and the mast, and the first white people they met came out of the surf, bedraggled, half drowned, and white, and they named them in slopey, which is this white half dead thing that came out of the surf uh, uh, from the <laughs> shipwrecks. That's some of the first ones they met uh, from the village side. And, and, uh, and and so um, the first term was hard because when they gave us uh, 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 just a few weeks to get out either to America or South Africa, and they went up and packed us up and moved what they could move, but we didn't take hardly anything. I think we just took our suitcases, our clothes. We probably took Mm -hmm. with us what. We didn't even take what we brought into Malawi because we knew in South Africa there was uh, shopping centers and malls. And uh, we could go into Johannesburg, fly or drive, and we could buy whatever we need. And we could have made whatever we needed there, too. And, and, mm. uh, uh, and, and yet one of the workers, I think I mentioned this before, Ruth was having such a hard time because she grew up with missionaries. Right. She had them in her home. They spent the night and, and all of them went to a country and stayed in a country. And we were so called through that process of 150 requests to Malawi and that spiritual way the Holy Spirit have us choose that after two years to tell her that she had to leave. There was something wrong in the kingdom of God mm. or something wrong with her. That, that's the way Ruth is wired, that, that maybe we heard wrong. And yet one Mm. of the workers, the leader of our mission, walked up to us at a goodbye ceremony. And it was, oh, wow. If you have to leave, those are the people that you want to send you off. But he Mm. put his arms around both of us and words Ruth has never forgotten. She uses them a lot. And he said, remember, serving Jesus is not a matter of location. It's a matter of obedience. Mm. That's a clear word. That's right. Oh yeah. And so uh, uh learning two language, you know, do you know Anthony that people that transfer by their decision in their first term 60% don't stay?
0: No, I didn't know that actually. If wow. they
1: if people go and for whatever reason they find it not a fit or too hard or not the people they thought they were going to work with or or whatever reason and they decide not to go home, but go to another field of service, 60% of them don't finish their first term.
0: Mm, I had no
2: idea. Well,
1: we didn't know that statistic. And we did not know what we were up against. We just knew we had to learn a second language. And then we did something that I would not do ever again. We moved four hours away from anybody else. And there yeah. we are. We built our own house. I mean, I contracted. I grew up that way. We, we had to fire the first contractor because he was uh, just mixing sand and water basically for the foundation and the flooring oh, no. <laughs> uh, and where you needed 12 bags of cement. He was using two and I could break, mm. th- I could break the flooring with my hands. And if you leaned against the wall, it was going to come down if you ever got to that. And so I just had to, mm. and I found out that he had borrowed, he had got all his supplies uh, on credit. And when I said, you know, this is just not working out, he wasn't upset. He just packed up his men and left. And he left with me with about $10,000 of debt in that little town and and, and inside of South Africa that I had to pay off.
0: Oh, no. Before
1: I could find another crew to come in there and stay and and, and build it. And so uh, we're learning language. And then immediately that we learn language, we move into apartment in South Africa Then we get a tiny, tiny trailer, and we put five of us in a trailer for two people. And we move it on the property, acre property. And when the rains come, you're up to your ankles in mud. And in the summertime, you're baking. And we had no electricity. Now, we're not in the trailer for a year. It was less than that. But in that house, in the summertime, I would go out and and wet down the bricks hoping that the condensation would somehow cool the house because we had a generator. So at night we didn't even have a fan and mm. Ruth and I and the boys, what we do for the boys, we would take their sheets and make them damp and wring them out and put them over the boys and put them over us. And therefore you'd have a couple, three hours of, of sleep before the sheets dried out. And then you began to burn up. And then in the winter time, there would be snow up in the mountains. And, and so we took a, a gas space heater, which is not very healthy to breathe that stuff. And we right. would move it from room to room to room. If, if we were gathered as a family in the living room, that's where it was. If we were in the kitchen dining room, that's where it was. And and we would have to go uh, pretty far to get gas for those that space heater. And then at night we just put on like, you know, I did that as a child in the attic. You just you just hot in the summertime and you sweat in the in in, in the summertime, in the wintertime. Uh, it, it's very, very cold. And I'd always be the first one to get up and go down the basement and fire up the coal furnace and then stand over the register with a blanket and, and get warm. And I wouldn't give the register to anybody else in the house, even my <laughs> older brother. And, and so that wasn't so different from where I grew up, but I didn't know that Ruth didn't grow up that way. Mm. But my goodness, how she rose with the blows and and how she can put up with about anything uh, to stay in the will of God. And so we're learning uh, that second language. We're learning it under apartheid. We're learning where black people have to live separate colored. People have to live separate. They have their own schools, Mm. their own buses, their own, their own geographical location. Uh, Indians, Hindus have their own places. Uh, usually Afrikaans speaking people, white people have their land and their places and their cities. And, 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 and British background, South Africans had uh, their own places. And, and and to live in apartheid, which means separate but equal, well, it was separate, but there was no equality in it. And mm, right. uh, it was it was i'll have to admit to anyone listening we went there and lived and had successful hard ministry because we lived in a place by i would never do this to another i would never let a family go out and live by themselves for almost five years i wouldn't do that mm. to them and, and and i'm gonna tell next week what we did to overcome this but At that time, we were doing it intuitively. And what a counselor told us to do is do it biblically and do it with intention. You can't do it just because of yours and Ruth's personality. That's not transferable. You've got to do it with intelligence and you've got to do it with biblical principles and you've got to do it with things that are transferable. Well, uh, we, we were out there. And, uh, uh, there was, uh, eight years that we were out there and we, we were there for four years before we had our first furlough. We we're on the field for over five years and learned two languages, moved, built a house, uh, uh done all of this, uh, what you would consider probably really hard stuff, uh, living under apartheid. Uh, but uh, that was on me those eight years because I was raised a racist hmm. and we had words for everybody. And though we were some of the poorest people in our area, uh, the way that we talked about black people, uh, and primarily because i never had met an Indian Asian or someone of another race. Uh, uh it, that was just in my DNA. Hmm. And I don't know that it affected our work in Malawi because we weren't there that long, but I realized in South Africa that if I did not crucify the racism that was in the depths of my soul and my being, that God would have no more use for us. Mm. And those eight years addressed that racism. Now we have a lot of people that still communicate with us that we love there, but uh, when I saw racism out of control with a PhD, uh, I realized that's what I had carried with me to Africa. And that's Mm. why I thought it was my job to tell Africans what to do. You have to come to Christ and then you have to build a building and then you have to get a pastor and then you've got to elect dictums and then you've got to translate the Baptist hymnal to sing. Mm. And, and that was just apartheid with love behind
0: it right right
1: you know and i'm afraid that that's a pattern in a lot of places by a lot of us uh right. one of the earliest movements of christianity uh into the world was uh, uh going along with colonial leaders mm. and they were part of that colonialism and, and not very separate to it and and when the colonial leaders have to got kicked out of africa a lot of those workers had to go with them because they were, you know, they were hand in the glove. And, and, and now in my lifetime, I've seen uh, uh, workers increase in Islam by a thousand percent by following the military into places like Somalia and Kosovo and Iraq and Syria. It doesn't work very well.
2: Mm, That's right. Why
1: didn't we get there 2000 years ago? Why didn't we get there a thousand years ago? Why didn't we get there 500 years ago? Why didn't we get there 40 years ago?
0: Mm. That's right.
1: I have a lot of church members. Not not a lot, but a number will say to me, isn't it wonderful how the military opens up these hard countries for you uh, as workers using the missionary word? And I'm thinking, no, it's not a good thing. Mm. And, and, And Muslims... This is part of the trauma. Muslims see missionaries as a soldier with a Bible. And they see soldiers as a missionary with a gun.
2: Mm. Wow.
1: We're part and partial of the same piece. You can't do this. Now, I know that this is going to be offensive to some people. I hope you hear the military after they got to know our non-government organization and its spirit and that we didn't make money off of the tragedies of the world, uh, uh, people in the United Nations and the military, uh, they gave us a lot of stuff. They funded Mm -hmm. us. They put their lives at risk. Uh, uh, Even the Pakistani soldiers uh, at one of our feeding sites, uh, we fed 5,000 people a day in in 10 feeding sites. So we're feeding 50,000 people a day. And on this one day, we had six of our nurses at a feeding site when the worst warlord, General I.D., decided to attack it. And that day we drew Pakistani troops. Some days Nepalese, some days Egyptians, some days the U.S. Army. That day we Hmm. were surrounded by Pakistani soldiers and 18 Pakistani soldiers gave their lives so that I and our six nurses could get out of there alive. Wow. Listen to me. Wow. 18 Muslims gave their lives for whom they knew were Christians and allowed us Mm. to live. And I met a Pakistani bishop by the grace of God on one of my trips out to Nairobi in a meeting I was invited to. And he was a, 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 a historical Christian in Pakistan not a Muslim convert, but I said, here's what's happened in Mogadishu. 18 Pakistanis have given their lives for us. Uh, What should I do? And he told me exactly what I do. And I flew uh, two or three days later back into Mogadishu and I went to the Pakistani military headquarters. They asked me at the gate why I've come. And I said, I've come to thank the Pakistani people and the Pakistani military for giving their lives to save our lives. And to thank them and to tell them how sorry I was. And within 30 minutes, I was in the general's office with the movie cameras going, with writers writing, and I'm on TVs and radios throughout Pakistan, mm. thanking the Pakistani people and for the families who their sons gave their lives to save our lives and how grateful we were. And that gave us an inroad to the military of the highest. Every Thursday, every Thursday, we went to the Pakistani military. Uh, base some of us who knew uh, were career people, and we would have they would treat us to a, a, a four-hour lunch, and and we would play games together, board games together, until a fundamentalist uh, sheikh imam came in there and put a stop to it after about a, uh, eight months, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that is just in some of the terrible situations of uh, again. That, that you're already seeing bits of the other side uh, of what, if you stay in Christ, uh, what the trauma is, 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 is met with. But I'm trying to describe here, uh, uh, you know, what it was like to go to South Africa, uh, live under apartheid, and then just through a, a movement of God in our hearts and reading of the Bible, we, we go into, move to Kenya. And they told us it'd take three to five years to get into Somalia. And and uh, two months after trying, uh, we were in Somalia. Six months later, we're feeding 50,000 people a day. We're, as I've said before, mm. burying 20 people, seeing all these women who have been molested so many multiple times. Uh, we're resettling refugees, mm. doing mobile medical clinics, uh, digging uh, food for work, helping people dig freshwater wells and line them with concrete. And I would go in and leave My family in Nairobi in various houses, we moved uh, five or six times throughout Nairobi. And one time Ruth moved us when I was gone and, Mm. and she had to be father and mother and I'd go in for four weeks to six weeks at a time. And then I would come out and, uh, uh, and, and then I've got all this trauma and, 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 but I need to save how we dealt with that. What do you do when you hold a three-year-old girl in your arms and she weighs eleven pounds?
2: Mm. And and and, wow.
1: and I and I would go sponsored by the United Nations and, and the U.S. military would give me uh, 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 enough petrol or diesel fuel to go. Uh, uh, five and 10 days down in uh, to central and Southern Somalia where nobody's been for three to five years. And every village I went to, uh, 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 and most of them, a hundred percent of the people were dead. And I would follow the main road and go off a side mud road. And I, and I knew that there were a village back there because there would be a skeleton that I could see Mm. on that side road. And as I drove up with my, Somali staff and I took one uh, American worker with me. That's one of my best friends. As we drove up there at first, every mile there would be a skeleton and then there'd be a skeleton every half mile, then every quarter mile, then every hundred yards. And then Mm -hmm. every so many feet. And they're all the skeleton of men trying to walk out to get food and leaving the women and children behind in those villages. And at first, at first, uh, we would take uh, these little uh, military shovels and the bayonets off of the, off of the guard's uh, uh, rifles and, and dig in the sand and, and carefully put those bones as intact as we could in those sands because unless you're buried in, entirely with your body, uh, you're not able to go to paradise. But mm. when it became 10 and 12 and 15 and 30 skeletons and 60 and 100 skeletons, we couldn't do that any longer, and we'd wow. get to these villages, and they're as pristine, uh, sitting on top of a mountain or over a river or a stream. And I'd walk into this hut that is just as well made as it could by mud bricks and a and, and a grass roof over the top. And I'd look, and, and and in the middle of that, where you know all these huts would have a hole in the top, and they would have a depression in the middle of the hut where they would cook, and the smoke would go up. Uh, And it is drawn out, you know, through the door, up and out of the apex of that ceiling. And there Mm. would be an old granny lady. And it's so dry, no rain. And and she could have been dead for three to five years. And she's completely preserved. And she died with a wooden spoon in a wooden thing they call a deal, stirring grass and leaves. Still, the remnants of it is is solidified in the bottom of that where she was cooking, and she died stirring that green stuff, trying to find something to eat. And when I turned around, on a rawhide string bed was a young girl, somewhere between 12 to 14 years, as beautiful a young lady as you'd want to witness, all of her features there, and she died pulling a comb through her hair.
2: Mm. Wow. Now...
1: I'm trying to refuse to allow the abnormal to become the normal. Mm. But how do you do that when that's the whole country? And you do that for eight years. And I go to a village. And if I've spoken this before, I'm sorry. But I go to a village that I am so mad. Because the adults ate all the food and let their children die. Mm. But I have come from a village about 11 miles away where all the adults died, leaving food behind so their children could live. And I found Mm. about 38 children there having eaten their last food, you know, looking really bad. They had water and they're eating vegetation. And so all of that food that the military gave us, uh, we were able to leave all of that with them that we could spare and and we're going to send some stuff or some people back. But I go over back to that village. That's I don't remember Anthony three or four or five miles away to those adults and say, what would you do if I could provide you with children again? Because they can't, they're not a childbearing age. They said, if you, if a miracle like that could ever happen, we would die and give our children the food i said come with me and Mm. uh, it took them a a day's walk and we came to that village of 38 children and the adults picked out one or two kids that they wanted and the children took them by their hand and they went home with those adults now Mm. what seminary class is that that's right where do you learn that you learn that as being as we're going to call a teaching material that we're developing by being a servant in the crucible of life. Right. And and for me, it's just good Kentucky common sense. I mean, what else would you do other than not go? And we learned when we went into these towns, when we went in the first town that we went into, it was a ghost town. And so the two trucks in convoy filled with the guards and filled with Meals ready to eat, food and water in the back of that truck. And I'm up front in the truck with the driver and the guard. And all of a sudden, when we stopped, doors started throwing open and people started coming out of windows. It's like they're coming out Mm. of the woodwork and they're trying to get the stuff out of the back. And women are trying to force mothers are trying to put their baby in the window next to me and saying, all of my children are dead. Take this one. Take this one. And I'm wanting to stop to help them. And the guard hit me in the chest and threw me back against the seat. And the drivers hit the floorboard and threw people off to the side and drove as fast as they could to get out of that small town. And we got about five miles out. They stopped and got out of the trucks and they surrounded me. And they said, Dr. Ripkin, hmm. if you ever do this again, we will kill you ourselves. You just about got us killed. If we had stopped. In that place, they would strip us of water, stripped us of food, stripped us of guns and ammunition. And if they didn't kill us, we're days, days, days away from being from Mogadishu and you would have killed every one of us. Mm. Where's your brain, man? So you Mm. know what I learned? That every time we came up on a city or a significant town, we would wait to dark. And we would coast into that town. And we'd find a place to hide the trucks. And at daylight, we would get out with the guards and start walking, listening for places where there might be a feeding site or where there might be kids that are alive, a place that we could help. And we would go there just on foot with those guns and the clothes on our back and not having anything worthy to steal and then finding out what the needs were. And Anthony, for the first few places, mm-hmm. we could meet some of the needs but after that, we couldn't meet them. Wow. The place we ended up, uh, uh, they told us you can't go any further because there's a minefield there. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you can't go farther in the south and the west. And so you're going to have to either drive all the way back through the country to Mogadishu, or you take this road. And in two or three hours driving, you're going to be at Kismayo, which is one of the maybe the second largest or the third largest city. Uh, in Somalia, and mm. there you can get petrol and you can get food, and, and and then you can drive back up the, I think, seven hours to Mogadishu. And so, what we did, the last place we went, was a leper colony. Mm. Now, if normal people are dying by entire villages, uh, these people uh, are dying big time. And yeah. and so, uh, what we're doing. Uh, uh, is that that leper colony, since they told us we're just three or four hours from a major city, we gave them everything we had. And we promised that if we could find a doctor that would go there, uh, we would send, but what we did, we couldn't find a doctor, but continuously we'd send trucks out there with food and water and vegetables and things for as long as our team was in Kismayo. Uh, again, where do you learn to do this? And, And what do you do with all of this stuff? And, uh, 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 and, and and so in Somalia, we, uh, we had conflict with our leadership uh, of, of all of our workers because they knew how to do the traditional countries. But in, in, in right. where we are, you're doing something new. It, it requires risk taking far beyond the risk they were willing to take ever before. And that had to be redefined and they weren't sure they were willing to redefine it uh, 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 where your budget might be for a whole country, two or $3,000, a hundred, a uh, hundred to $200,000. Ours is a, a two or $3 million. Mm. So there's a whole way of, we had to raise money from international communities and, and we had to live in a team house and do things in community where the rule was every unit, single and married had to have their own, uh, place of dwelling which were, uh, that would just sign your death and so uh, it, it was just a, 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 a different way of doing things and and it, it caused a lot of stress between myself and our leadership and, and there was a number of times I was asked to leave the job hmm. but no longer than three days <laughs> because they, they didn't have anybody that was crazy enough to go back in and, and manage right. our team and, and do what we're doing and so uh, it, it was really hard the first time. It was interesting the second time. And the third time it was just, well, we we just knew it was just not going to last very long, but that, mm. so what you're doing, you're fighting a two front war. You're having the war that is Somalia and you're having the war that sometimes it, it is what's supposed to be your support. Uh, uh uh on on in africa and, and yet because they they haven't been where you've been and they uh, uh and 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 they didn't come in there and stay longer than one day can you imagine in in over 7 years they came in and stayed one or two days
2: mm-hmm. and then
1: said wow they took the next United I not mean, and that's nothing wrong they just don't have the same personality and gift set that Ruth and I have. And, but, but at the same time, you're fighting a two front war. You've got the trauma that is all that Somalia and things that I'll never tell anybody else, except my wife and God. And you've got the trauma of coming home and, and, and knowing that you, your wife is running a multi million dollar business out of the house. Hmm. And she's also raising our three children. And we had to find a way to make that work. And and we had to find yeah. a way for her to go in and work with Somali women and work with our mm-hmm. women. And, 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 and so you've got all of that. And, and, uh, uh, and then we go from that to our son dies mm. in a two month period, our 16 year old son dies on Easter Sunday morning from an asthma attack. And it took us eight days to get, Permission to bury him on the campus where the boys were going to school and and there were some real governmental problems with that, and people asking mm. for things they shouldn't ask for and there was a Kenyan lady from the u s embassy that ran interference for me, otherwise I'd probably still be trying to get our son buried mm. or I would have had to bring him back to America, but that's not what he would have wanted, or what we mm. or his brothers wanted and so in two months, our sixteen year old son died. Our, uh, we got kicked out of Somalia and Ruth's mother died two months to mm. the day that our son died. Wow. That's a lot of trauma over, over now. That is, uh, 10, 17 years in Africa. And now we've done wow. four languages. We've done Chichewa, Kosa, Swahili, and worked on Somali as hard, hard as we could, but it's a much more difficult language. And, and since we were doing, we went straight to work rather than set, setting aside a year, two years to learn language, we decided to go in there in the height of the civil war and famine. And, uh, and so the second wave of workers that came after us, they didn't go in until they learned the language and culture and they did a much better job yeah. uh, spiritually than I could have done. And, and, and on top of all of that, from my football years in high school, where I played offense and defense and graduated weighing 117 pounds. Hmm. Until this day, I've had 35 surgeries. And uh, some of those are very minor. Uh, some of those are knee replacement, uh, multiple surgeries on my face because of uh, uh, nine breaks playing football, uh, uh, two major back surgeries, and and some, you know, really, some drama because we were in Africa and and so that takes a big toe on you and so when you bring all this mm. together, um, there's enough trauma to last probably thirty people thirty lifetimes
0: oh absolutely
1: and and so what we want to do uh, today is just put a, a comma in our conversation and uh and 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 and, and say. Uh, if this is not what you've got in your lives, you've got something else hmm. and, and 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 I don't want you to feel guilty because you're having trouble and yet you're not burying dead children and you're not going to villages that are dead because we all right. uh, have our different limits and, and 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 we all have to decide whether we allow the the the, the uh, what did I say before the abnormal to become the norm. And Mm -hmm. and so what we want to do is put a a comma here. And then next time we get together, we we want to talk about the grace of God and what you do with all this trauma Mm -hmm. and how you surround yourself with the body of Christ and how you create community internationally. Because just as a hint, we wouldn't cross the border in Somalia without 1500 people praying for us. And when I went on a trip like I would go on, Ruth would get in touch with all of our prayer warriors and make sure that we had three or four thousand people praying for us Mm. (laughs) just to give you a hint into the future. But next time, let's talk about, you know, it may be your church and it may be your marriage and it may be uh, your health and it may be that you're on the mission field. But let's talk about, through God's grace, some strategies for finishing the race mm. and we may all be scarred for the Lord. And some of these things won't be healed until we stand in the presence of Jesus. But what my prayer right. is, is that we can finish our race mm. and not give ourselves a, dis- an honorable discharge and go do something else. So Anthony, mm. God bless. Um, I need to go be with our small group. We share a meal uh, every time this week. And, uh, uh, I've made us late for this meal, but, uh, I need to go f- and, and be with them and, and be, uh, encouraged by them and blessed by them. So, uh, uh we'll talk again next week.
0: Mm, I love that. Nick, thank you for sharing such a deeply personal and, um, just powerful insight into what you've experienced. And like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, for our listeners, um, as you were listening through this episode and kind of thinking about uh, next week and working through strategies and different things, we want you to write into the website question at nickcripkin.com. You can put in the subject line for Nick only or for Ruth only. And if you've experienced some of these uh, similar things, or maybe you're walking through something right now in ministry on the, the mission field, we want you to write in and maybe share, this is what you've experienced and this is how uh, God worked with you.
1: Well, what I Again, would suggest let them listen through this week and next week and Mm -hmm. then put the two pieces together. And then if they want to talk more, let's talk more.
0: Let's do it. I love it. Well, Nick, thank you for your time and thank you for those powerful stories. And to our listeners, uh, make sure that you tune in next week as we uh, look into those strategies of how God has used these uh, and how he has worked through these. So we thank you for listening for us today and we'll be with you next time.